Things in Washington are absolutely insane. Just insane. Uh, the, these people are acting uh, as if as if they're serving us, and they are not serving us. There was a temper tantrum by Pelosi and Schumer and accusations back and forth. Meanwhile, Schiff yesterday was was leaning on the EU ambassador, trying to get him to say something that he wouldn't say. He didn't believe this is just a crock. And the real villain, quite honestly, is the press. The press this morning used a well let, let me just let me just uh, share with you the headline on Elijah Cummings Democratic leader and regular Trump target dies at 68 <gasps> Did the president shoot him We know we're not supposed to use the word target What do they mean by that The villainy continues. We talk about it in one minute. This is the Glenn Beck program. Elijah Cummings has passed away. Now, Elijah Cummings is is has never been a guy that I've agreed with politically, but I've had respect for Elijah Cummings and what he has accomplished in his life. Um, let me just let me just give you a little bit here. Democratic congressman from Maryland who gained national attention for his principled stands on politically charged issues in the House, his calming effect on anti-police riots in Baltimore. Uh, he died Thursday morning at Gilchrist Hospital Care, Johns Hopkins affiliate in Baltimore. He was 68. After undergoing an unspecified medical procedure, the Democratic leader did not return to his office this week, according to the Sun. A statement from his office as he passed away due to complications concerning a long-standing health challenge. Mr. Cummings was the chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee and a leading figure in the Trump impeachment inquiry. Born to a family in southern uh, to uh, southern sharecroppers and Baptist preachers, he grew up in a racially fractured Baltimore in the 50s and 60s. At 11, at 11, he helped integrate a local swimming pool while being attacked with bottles and rocks. Perry Mason, the popular TV series about fictional defense lawyer, inspired him to enter the legal profession. Many men in my neighborhood were going to, do refor- were going to reform school. Uh, though I didn't uh, completely know what reform school was, I knew that Perry Mason won a lot of cases. I also thought that these young men probably needed lawyers. He became the youngest chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus, yada, yada, yada. He has been a force for good much of his life. He has also taken stands uh, as a legislator that I disagree with. But I just, I just, I think this is an insult from the Washington Post. Washington Post, Representative Elijah Cummings, Democratic leaguer, leader and regular Trump target, dies at 68. You know, I was a target of the president. He was a target of mine for a while. If I die today and somebody writes about that in the headline really that's what my life was worth my life was worth that 
I'm not 68. He was 68. He's done m- many, many things that I can't even come close to accomplishing. And that's the way the Post honors him? I think it's an insult. Our condolences to his family. And it is a loss to the country. Now, let me talk about the Post and the mainstream media. He was a regular Trump target? What do you mean by that? Are you saying the president was targeting him? Did the president kill him? It's an undisclosed problem. Was he shot by the president? Because I know we're not supposed to use the word target. Oh, we learned our lesson, didn't we? Mainstream media. We don't ever use the word target as, as, as some way of saying, hey, we should look into this or we should focus our energies here or we're talking about this particular person. No, no. In the mainstream media, we all learned our lesson that targeting somebody only means killing them. Now, I hope, Washington Post, that you understand by using the words target that Trump targeted him. You are encouraging somebody out there to target him still. I hope they have security on the gravestone because somebody might just shoot it up, even though he's already dead, because you use the word target. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it, Washington Post? I am so tired. It's a waste of energy. To talk about these people. To talk about their hypocrisy. I listened to the New York Times Daily this morning. I Blood was shooting out of my eye. I want you to know, the only reason why I listen to it, the only reason why I read this crap, is so you don't have to. I want to know what the other side is saying. I want to understand their argument. I want to understand where they're coming from, and they just can't see their own hypocrisy. Go ahead. Call me a hypocrite on anything. Oh, Glenn Beck, he was against Donald Trump when he was, when he was running. Now his business was falling apart, and so he... No, that wasn't it. I told you during the campaign. If the guy is doing these policies... I'll be the first to say it. I don't sign on for everything on Donald Trump. I think the guy is a really flawed human being. You'll notice Donald Trump doesn't retweet any of the anything that we've done. He's not even mentioned the chalkboard, which is a great help to him. You know why he doesn't? Because he doesn't trust me. I'm not in his pocket. Hmm. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? Yes. You know why the Washington Post doesn't like to do things? You know why why uh, Google is is changing the algorithm to keep things that I produce out of the mainstream because they don't trust me. They don't know if I'm an ally or an enemy. What a wonderful place to be. You know how you get there? You call balls and strikes. 
the hypocrisy this morning of the New York Times to talk about how we we've been predicting this all of the things i mean honest to god they sounded like they were all of a sudden into predictions we know they don't like predictions we know that that's conspiracy theories if you just take things and do math and take people at their word you you can't talk about those things those are crazy ideas no 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 Today, they were talking about Syria and Turkey and how they predicted all of this. This was so easy to see. Really, was it? Yeah. Everybody on Earth, including the White House, saw this mess coming. Everybody saw that. What you'll forget is that many of us a long time ago in almost a dream world now it's so far away i can't even remember it what was his name did they even have sound and talkies in the movie theater when barack obama was in office do you remember when some of us said don't get into bed with these kurds these Kurds are not the Kurds in Iran, or I mean in, in Iraq. These are bad Kurds. These are communist Kurds. These are terrorist Kurds. And John McCain stood up and told all, all of us, oh no, these are good guys. I remember being on the air at the time saying, no, these aren't good guys. These are bad guys, and we're going to do the same damn thing that we did in Afghanistan with Osama bin Laden. We're going to teach them, we're going to arm them, and they're going to turn against us. Don't do it. Bad. Do you remember? You know what? Oh, do you know what the New York Times actually said today? What you have to understand is the Middle East doesn't like a vacuum. If, if you destabilize, if you destabilize a region, well, somebody will, will grow to fill that. Really? Like in Egypt? Like in uh, Libya? Like in Syria? Like in Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. It only took us two countries to figure it out. You on the left still haven't figured it out. No, you do now. You say you do now. But you're only saying that because it's a way to go against Donald Trump. If you want to go against Donald Trump, go against him on something real and something that is actually something you believe in. Oh, we, we've got to stop. We have to end these wars. Barack Obama is so wonderful. He wants to end these wars. What do you mean pulling out of Iraq would cause all kinds of problems? No, we have to. He's just trying to bring the troops home. Oh, and then there was problems. Well, of course there's going to be problems, but we have to end these wars. Here's a guy who actually is a dove. Here's a guy his whole life. There's two things I know Donald Trump believes. Well, three. Himself. He believes in himself. Got it. Two, he believes in trade wars. Got it. He's believed in his whole life. Number three, he doesn't believe in war. His whole life, he has been against almost every war we've ever seen in my lifetime. And he's been on the record. 
So he's your dove left. He's the one you've been looking for. He's actually doing what Barack Obama promised he would do. And now you don't like it? Oh, yes, because the Middle East, you know, it doesn't like a vacuum. Really? Why don't you tell that to Hillary Clinton when she said, we came, we conquered, he died about Gaddi, uh, about Gan, uh, um, uh, what's his name in Libya? Gaddafi. Why don't you talk to her about that? Why don't you talk to, uh, why don't you talk to, uh, what was her name? Samantha. She's the, the, the wife of the woman, uh, the wife of the guy who uh, wrote Nudge. I haven't talked to her, talked about her for a while. Samantha, somebody or other. Cass Sunstein's wife. She was the one who was pushing for the instability. Don't talk to me about this, Google and Facebook. You're the ones who intentionally lit the Middle East on fire. And don't, don't say you didn't, because we know, because you were very, very proud of the role you played in the Arab Spring. So don't, please. If you want to come to me and say, hey, we were part of this, like I will, I'll come to you. Hey, I, I was actually for the war in Iraq because I know that the real danger there is Iran. And I thought we were going to pop the head of the snake. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Boy, I was wrong. Have you heard anybody in the media say that about the Arab Spring, about Libya, about Syria, about getting into bed and arming these people? No, of course not. Because they're all frauds. I know why I'm listening to them. I'm listening to them because that's part of my job. I just don't know why other Americans still listen to them. I want to tell you about George. He lives in Ohio, and George is very much like me in one way. He, he's an architect, and he still likes to do everything with a pencil. I, I tell you, I walk into places now, and I'm like, could I get a pad of paper and a pencil, please? And people are like, What? Okay, Grandpa. It's like we don't make them even anymore. I like to handwrite things. I love fountain pens, and I love to handwrite things. Um, but I, for a long time, I couldn't. I couldn't write on the chalkboard. That's why we're just starting to do chalkboards. You want to know when I'm feeling really good? We do chalkboards. I wasn't doing chalkboards. If you watch the show, I, I wasn't doing them. We had animated chalkboards, and that was because I couldn't hold the chalk in my hand. Just like George, he was an architect. He liked pencils. He couldn't draw it anymore. His hands were in so much pain. I relate. Well, George started taking Relief Factor. And guess who's drawing again? He's not taking drugs that are going to cloud his vision. I'm not taking drugs that are cloud your vision. You're in a real bind when you can't live your life anymore. Thankfully, he discovered Relief Factor drug-free. It worked remarkably well. He's back to building the things he sees in his imagination, and he has Relief Factor to thank for it. Relief Factor reduces the inflammation, a major source of most pain, and it worked for 70% of those who take it. Try it now for $19.99. Try it for three weeks. If it doesn't work, stop taking it. If you want a drug-free, natural way to ease your pain and get your life back, go to relieffactor.com. That's relieffactor.com. We pause for 10 seconds. Station ID. Uh. 
You know, I didn't even get to the Volcker testimony yesterday or Nancy Pelosi now requesting prayers for the president because he's so unstable. She claims that uh, uh, he had a mental breakdown in the cabinet room. Do we have the pictures of her pointing her finger at uh, Donald Trump? Uh, there she is standing and yelling at the president. He's just sitting there. Uh, she's standing and pointing her finger and yelling at the president. Who had a mental breakdown? I don't know. I don't care. Do the work for the American people. Now, the reason why she said that he was just unstable and insulting is because he said, uh, you know, you guys, you guys are standing up for communists. And that's true. That's who these guys are. And I know there's a problem, but that's why we are working without the government to help those people who are in harm's way. Stop, stop wanting the government to do everything. So he says to her, you, you know, you're protecting communists, which is probably something you guys like. Well, that was just insulting, and she had to walk out. Of course, she walks out, and she says the president was just unstable. Please pray for his mental health. This is obscene. This is, there is no way to, to uh, run a country when you have this going on. Now, that's what the Democrats are counting on. I, I firmly believe the Democrats are going to uh, run a campaign basically that says, have you had enough yet? You want four more years of this? And the answer is no. I don't want it. Nobody wants it. I don't think Democrats want it. Republicans, they don't want this. Independents certainly don't want it. But who are you going to give the reins to? Where, where are the adults in the room? And Donald Trump was right. These guys are communists. And you know what? I don't know about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer... But they don't seem to have a problem with a communist in their own party. (laughs) That's not unreasonable to say. Do you really think that there's a difference between the Marxist socialists, communists that are currently over in Syria and some of the Marxist socialists that are running for president or in Congress? You're listening to Glenn Beck. Welcome to the uh, program. Uh, I'm I just on the turkey thing. Can I just say this? We all knew this was coming. We knew this was coming. We knew one way or another what was happening with us joining forces with really bad people would come and bite us in the ass. Now it is biting us in the ass. Okay. We knew that for a decade. So we can sit here and argue about whose fault it is. I think it's Obama's fault and, and, and John McCain's fault for getting us there in the first place. Others are saying, well, it's Donald Trump's fault for getting us out. Okay, fine, whatever, whatever. Let them argue about it. May I suggest you just join me in doing something about it that matters? Let's just go save these people that are in harm's way. We have people on the ground right now. Let's, let them argue it out. There's, it's, it's like kindergarten. Let's just do what we have to do and stop waiting around for the stupid government to do it. You want to save these people? We can do it. 
Just join us, NazareneFund.org. Read all about it. Do your own homework. 100% of every single dollar raised goes to save these people. We have people on the ground right now. Was it yesterday? We got the first, I think, 28 out. We have people on the border. We have people. We've lost operatives trying to save these people. Just help us. Five bucks. Five bucks a month. NazareneFund.org. Just stop listening to all these arguments of it. and Let's just do something good. All right, we have uh, Rob Henderson on. He is a Gates Cambridge scholar, uh, and I know he's a Gates Cambridge uh, scholar because I had to look up the, the the second word in the headline of his story, the atavism of cancel culture. And I'm like, it's activism, dummy. And then I realized that it's, no, that's actually, no, that's it's, it's atavism. Uh, and I had to look it up. So he went to Yale. I went to Yale. He graduated. I didn't. I think that's the difference. Welcome, Rob uh, Henderson, to the program. How are you? Hi, Glenn. Great. Great to be here. Uh, so <laughs> you sound like you almost believe that, too. Um, Rob, the uh, the atavism of cancel, uh, cancel culture, what you're saying is, is this is something that is ancient inside of us. It's tribal. Right, right. So the way I think about cancel culture is that it's rooted in some of these primitive human drives to obtain social status and in-group solidarity with our peers, as well as to identify our friends and our foes. And we generally go into tribes when we're afraid. I mean, it is it's human nature. And so when we're afraid of something, we go into tribes and the deeper we go into the tribe, the the more we don't listen anymore and and we lose all sense of proportion and and any sense of nuance right right well you know tribalism is inherently human so whether we're in danger or not we do like to be around you know sort of sort of our group you know people who we sure. feel comfortable around sure um but when we are in danger we are more likely to to seek people who think like us who behave like us and to sort of denigrate people who we're afraid of or who don't agree with us. So tell me what happened to you in 2016 while you were an undergrad at Yale. Yeah, you know, Glenn, I've been concerned about cancel culture for a long time. And, you know, I was actually in the military before I attended Yale for undergrad. And, you know, I'd heard stories about, you know, extra sensitive college students and snowflakes and so on. And I thought a lot of it was probably just the media maybe blowing things out of proportion. But then literally within my first two months at Yale, so this was um, the fall semester of 2015, uh, a faculty member named Erica Christakis wrote an email uh, around Halloween telling students that they should communicate with each other more if they're offended by the costumes that they, you know, other students choose to wear, um, rather than relying on the university administration to give us guidelines of what costumes we're allowed to wear or not. And the student reaction to her was just pure outrage. Um, they targeted her. They turned her into a pariah on campus for essentially defending freedom of expression. And eventually she had to resign um, and basically said that the climate on campus was not conducive to free speech. So she stepped down from her from her positions at the university. And so, OK, so I thought that was weird. Um, I thought, OK, so, you know, maybe this is just a quirk of American universities and that this is just unique to schools in the United States. Um, but then I ar- arrived to the University of Cambridge here in England um, last year, and literally within a few first few months, 
Jordan Peterson, who's probably the most famous academic in the world, gets disinvited from the university because a bunch of student and faculty protesters said that, you know, him him being here would make them feel scared or unsafe or something. <laughs> and so, you know, there there is this problem in academia, but then in, in culture more broadly um, about people getting canceled for, you know, things that they say. Can I ask you this, Rob? What uh, you know, the thing that happened at, at Yale um here's here's a woman who's saying look talk to each other have personal responsibility uh, take this upon yourself to understand don't go to don't go to the man don't expect the <laughs> the college to do this this is the exact opposite kind of thinking from the 60s or any kind of of real movement with the youth they are they are holding up these it, it, the government and the administration in that case and saying, yeah, we we should have them do everything for us. Where does that come from? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think in an interview, Erica Christakis, the professor who got, you know, who stepped down at Yale, um, she actually kind of referred to herself as this kind of 60s liberal, you know, this person who sort of marched with the students and believed in the whole freedom of speech cause. Um, so it's sort of ironic that she's getting targeted now for simply defending freedom of expression. And I think a lot of people from that generation are sort of bewildered at, at what's happening because oftentimes they're the ones being targeted now. Um, but don't you, find it, don't you find it additionally strange that in an era where your voice can be heard, you have the power to be heard and to be seen anywhere around the world, that you have the power to start your own business unlike any other time in the world, and you can become famous unlike any other time in the world, that that generation is going back to like a 1950s kind of structure? Well, I think what's happening here, Glenn, is that the ideology and power are afraid of free speech. So, you know, in, in the 50s and the 60s, there, there was a sort of perhaps more conservative ideology that held power in the universities and in society. And the group that considered themselves the underdogs, maybe the, the sort of progressives at the time, were fighting for freedom of speech. Whereas today, those students who protested back then now have the power and they're afraid of sort of uprisings of, of um, people who are challenging that. And so I'm not entirely sure that freedom of speech itself is, you know, this bedrock principle, but it's only used as a sort of uh, as, as a weapon against uh, the opposing ideology. Exactly right. So then what happens, Robert? What do we what is our future hold and how do we get our arms around this? Because as you point out in your article, um, you know, wait until it's you. You could be next. You point out in the article, that's not enough. That's theoretical to too many people. Even though we're seeing it happen in real time right now, it's still not enough. Right. I don't think that those words, you know, you could be next, which I see a lot on social media and in conversations about cancel culture. I don't think it actually registers for most people simply because the social rewards of, you know, getting into a mob and trying to cancel someone you know, those rewards are too immediate and gratifying, and the dangers of cancel culture are pretty remote and abstract. I mean, it just isn't um, a sort of salient threat for a lot of people. So Kipling uh, wrote in his poem, The Gods of the Copybook Headings, um, that all these things will happen until terror and slaughter return. 
and what he was talking about was you're just going to go off the deep end, but it will take terror and slaughter to return to common sense. Uh, and we've seen this time and time again. Are we at that point to where the only thing that's going to stop this is just, I mean, people didn't understand it in the 1920s. Hey, you could be next. But by 1939, pretty much everybody was clear. You know, even those in Germany, pretty clear. Oh, wow, I could be next. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, are we at that point to where that's the only thing that's going to stop this stuff? Is the world going into total madness? You know, I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic than that. Good. Um, I don't think that we're sort of, you know, physically in danger, but I do think there's a lot of reputational danger at stake here. You know, people aren't necessarily fearing for their personal physical safety, despite what a lot, what a lot of like social justice activist warriors will try to tell you. You know, it's not physical safety. It's more a reputational safety. You know, any one of our reputations could be destroyed in the blink of an eye. For something that that we might have said, you know, ten years ago, you know, you, you see a lot of people digging up old tweets or old Facebook posts that you you might have written in like 2009. Um, so I think it's more the reputational destruction that's the real risk here. Um, but I think that as we continue to talk more about this and bring these, you know, these issues to light, that people will slowly come to their senses. But in the meantime, I don't really see cancel culture going away. I think that it's going to get quite a bit worse before we start to see it get better. Mm. Uh, Rob, thank you so much and really appreciate um, you uh, speaking out and, and, and risking your own reputation. I'm sure you've had pushback. Have you not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had a, had a few critics here and there, but I just brushed them off. Yeah. Good for you, Rob. Thank you so much. Rob Henderson. You can find him at Rob K Henderson. Uh, Follow him on uh, Twitter. Thank you so much, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. It's like I it's I feel like I'm in a Jason Bourne movie today. I've just It's like they're everywhere, man. They're everywhere. In a secret interview, uh, Adam Schiff, leader of the House Democratic effort to impeach President Trump, pressed former United States Special Representative to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, yesterday to testify that Ukrainian officials felt pressured to investigate former President Joe Biden's son. If you read the actual transcript, it is crazy town. It's crazy town. By the way, why am I reading the transcript of a secret interview? Can somebody help me out with that one? Uh, The interview, which took place in a secure room, uh, covered several topics, including quid pro quo, the U.S. military aid in exchange for Ukrainian investigation of the Bidens. Uh, the Ukrainians didn't want to be drawn into investigating a Democratic president uh, uh, candidate for president, which would only mean peril for Ukraine. Is that fair to say, said Schiff? Well, that may be true. That may be true. But they didn't express that to me. And of course, I didn't know that that was the context at the time. Uh, he went on um, and said uh, part of the other context is vital military support being withheld from Ukraine during the period, right? That's what Schiff asked. Well, that was not part of the context of the time. Uh, at least to my knowledge, the Ukrainian leaders were not aware of that. So what, what's crazy is Schiff is trying to say, well, he made this threat on the phone call. 
Well, if he did, he was really bad at it because they didn't know it. Well, they found out later. Well, then wait a minute. What do you mean they found out later? You, you're you talking to me about what I heard on the phone call and what I heard from other people in between, you know, right after the phone call. They didn't know that. They didn't get that impression from the president. You're saying that that's what the president was saying. Well, if none of us thought that's what he was saying and they didn't think that was what he was saying, how can you prove that that's what he was saying what <laughs> this just seems to be such a, a fishing expedition here especially with schiff and if you remember we were talking about this the other day i think it might have been off the air but with nixon they had everything on tv everyone remembers those hearings being yeah. on tv largely though there most of those hearings happened beforehand and they were essentially almost recreations on tv they mm-hmm. knew what they were going to get out of these people Correct. because they had talked to him behind the scenes Correct. and it seems like that's what schiff's doing here he's probing to see if he can find a guy who's going to turn or say something uh, that is going to lean against the president, because then they will become far more credible in this yes. investigation. Yeah. Um, and here you're seeing this guy's just trying to tell the truth. Like he's not he's not lying. He's not um, playing defense for Trump here. No, he's just telling you the obvious things that right. occurred. And I don't know if there's any value for a Democrat in that um, type of witness. Right. By the way, if you listen to the whistleblowers that we have had on. I wouldn't send the money to uh, to the new president either, and it wouldn't have anything to do with uh, with Joe Biden. I mean, he says on the phone call, we're afraid that you're still surrounded by many of the people who are very, very dirty and we're part of this. And he says, no, I, I know who you're talking about. And we got rid of him. And the president says, no, we think they're still around you. You should do your homework and look into it. Now, these are the people who were involved in money laundering. These are the people that were involved in trying to throw the election. They're oligarchs. Well, if you listen to our whistleblower, he names those oligarchs and says, yeah, they were still in the administration at Ukraine. Ukraine, man. It's like the entire country is waste disposal experts at casinos. It's, it's, just, like the, most it's the Sopranos. Yeah, it is. It's the Sopranos. You're listening to Glenn Beck.